the Museum of the Bible special. There's a phenomena that is sweeping the country today, and that is the younger generation is turning to socialism. Why? Wow. Um, so let's start with a definition of capitalism. If we define capitalism as the privately and corporately owned exchange of goods and services in a free market, it has pros and cons. Um, some of the consequences of capitalism is that um, everything can be perceived as having a financial equivalent. Relationships can become transactional. A class system can be established and social problems develop. That's why if there's not moral accountability with any system, because there's no perfect system because of human beings running those systems, if you don't have moral accountability, then uh, it can cross boundaries and these problems can develop and go out of hand. So if you have young people who capitalism is not working for because it's an economic system and so, so is socialism, they'll look for another economic system in order to thrive. They'll give up on that. So we haven't done a good job because I'm a capitalist also with compassion <laughs> and morality, but uh, I believe in the free market. I believe in that uh, wholeheartedly. So they'll look for other alternatives. The problem is they'll see only the economic of socialism but not the totalitarianism that comes with it. So I think they're looking for an alternate economic system because this system is not working for them. Explain the totalitarianism of socialism and also dive deeper in the morality of accountability because some would say in business, my morality is not your morality. Are we saying there's a universal business morality? Well, I, I will say there's a universal business. We, we have house ethics committees. We have ethics in business. We, we have built into our business certain rules and regulations that guide conduct, right, and define right and wrong conduct. When you speak of morality, you're talking about an internal compass. You're talking about something that, that's transcendent, that is universal, that we just don't pick and choose. Even the atheist realizes that you have to have morality in a society for it to function properly, for it to thrive properly and you have to have boundaries in terms of interactions with, with human beings. So when you think of business, uh, I think of morality as an internal compass in those who run the business. And that spills out into the business, to the employees, to the customers, to the investors, to the public, by a set of rules that guide how they do business, what they will and will not allow uh, in the functioning of, of business. So I think that's, that's, that's where morality and ethics come into play. So when you think about totalitarianism, now you're talking about the state owning, remember my definition is, is privately and corporately owned uh, goods and services that are being exchanged. So when the state owns and controls everything, all right, that depletes the society because what capitalism allows for is creativity, innovation. And God has given each of us certain gift, talents, and abilities, and he determined for us to discover our purpose and give back to society through the use of those gift, talents, and abilities and to have them flourish. Capitalism allows for that to happen. Uh, as opposed to socialism, it, it, it doesn't allow for that. Mr. Drummond, you're, you're in the healthcare space, and you have 
made some phenomenal contributions and strides in that space. There's always this debate of universal health care. Everybody should have health care. Everyone should have access. But that is not necessarily the case. Talk about in your business when you deal with the morality of health care, you, but you also have to deal with the reality of the choices that right. people make. Right. And this process that contribute greatly sure. to that healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. So it is without question. I mean, and I think back to one of the, you know, famous quotes that Dr. Martin Luther King made about making sure that there is equality in healthcare. That everyone who deserves not to get it, right? So, but I think with that in mind, there are costs to that. I mean, and so we know other com countries. Um, outside of the United States that do have universal, universal health care. But there is a cost. And so I think that as our, our country um, grapples with about, I think, like 19.7% of our gross national product right now is spent in health care, yet we are 16th in the world, our life expectancy, certainly um, disease and morbidity, and it's especially true with racial and, and ethnic minorities where it's disproportionately represented. I mean, there's clearly, you know, there was a higher number of African Americans and Hispanics, people of color, dying from COVID, and we can just go on from maternal and child health. So clearly, you know, Armstrong, we, there's a, it's a conundrum, right? How do we balance the spending with the delivery of care? And I, honestly, I think that our dollars have been misappropriated in, you know, needs to be realigned. There needs to be a realignment. Um, you know, we think about just the lobbying and just the dollars that are spent outside of medical services um, and how do we really address many of, we call it social determinants, realizing the social needs that many individuals have. So, um, you know, we've got a lot of work to do to realign our spending so that indeed we can have health care for all and high quality Healthcare that we can, you know, certainly go upstream and provide more preventative services. Now we really, honestly, we have a sick care system, not a healthcare system, mm -hmm. right? Money is gained when people are sick mm -hmm. and access the system. But how do we go upstream to really ensure better? preventative care. We saw it in our public health system. Our public health was incredibly underfunded, right? We saw that coming into COVID. So I won't keep on going, no, but please, I think please. it's it's really a realignment of how we are spending those dollars and looking at the incentives. I think the incentives also are malaligned. You get incentivized when people need surgery, when need hip replacements, knee replacements, and, you know, diabetes, all the chronic conditions. Mm. Could we have started in our schools, right? Stop maybe some of those sugary drinks, all the snacks and things that we, you know, that we, could we have gone upstream, changed some behaviors early, right? How would that flip? But then again, some other folks may not get paid. But what about the morality of people That's who make their money That's right. and their way of life That's right. by the shortcoming? And it also can determine the habits of people by algorithms now. They know exactly what they do. Absolutely. And they, so how Absolutely. do we... What, what? So, you know, when we even think about, you know, AI and just big data, mm -hmm. um, and we think about morality, 
Like, when you look at that data, I often talk about health disparities and health equity. And the way that we look at data, we apply our health equity lens. No, hold on. I don't want to just see what's going on in the census. I don't want to just see who the majority know. Tell me who are those that are disproportionately represented around this condition. Oh, now I'm understanding the disparity and the population that truly needs the service. So when you fail to really look at the data, because we know policy is often driven by data, right? So I'm going to ask you a question. Who's looking at the data? What is the morality of those individuals? Because ultimately, they establish the policy. So who's getting rich? Who, who, where's the money? Well, follow the money, <laughs> I often say. Follow the dollars, and that will oftentimes tell you what's really behind the decision-making and oftentimes the, mora- the moral. You know, what is the moral fabric behind our policymakers, behind our data analytics? If you keep on looking, you'll find the children that are really undernourished and need to have you know, the services, the, you know, better nutrition. But, you know, if they're on a different side of town, you know, or I don't see those numbers, I can become kind of unconsciously hmm, biased. Disconnected. Yeah, disconnected. I'm disconnected. That's not on my side of the street. That, that that's the question because you talk about a, a morality as it applies to inequities, but what do you do when a Catholic hospital will not accept health care uh, payment for an abortion? Now... You've got a moral crisis that that hospital is facing because of their moral standing, yet someone's going to have to go to another hospital to utilize those funds. Allocating monies for things that certain individuals consider to be immoral within the society. How do we respond to those realities? Sure. Well, you know, I'm going to say that... um I think it comes back again to early what we were talking about is the morality of that business, right? And where you see that, you know, so for me, God established my business. No question about it. I know that I was called by his divine purpose. And so the guidelines of which I'm going to run HCD International, um, certainly I'm not perfect, but I'm seeking God, Lord, what is, you know, what is, how do you want me to run this according to your word and your will? It's very important to me. Um, so, you know, when I think about, you know, just kind of what are your drivers and what are those things, you stand by that. And, and that becomes that moral compass that you, that you, uh, you know, that you abide by. I'm, a, you know, I'm a, my background is healthcare. I'm not going to do an abortion. That's not what I'm going to oh, do. Okay. Right? Now, and if, would you if, and would you perform a same-sex marriage? What's the morality of that for you? No. You wouldn't. No. Explain that. No. Why wouldn't I? Yes. Uh, it's inconsistent with what I believe to be God's order and ordering of human society in terms of relationship. Um, so anything that's going to go outside of that boundary uh, I'm not going to agree with. And, and you know, this, these have to be convictions. There was a 1972 court case, uh, Jonas Yoder versus the state of Wisconsin. Uh, Yoder was an Amishman, and he uh, insisted on removing his daughter from public school because he felt that all that he had taught her and poured into her in terms of her Christian faith would be corrupted in that context. So he kept her home. Uh, make a long story short, 
he got into battle with school systems, with the state of Wisconsin. He ended up going to jail uh, because of his beliefs. And it forced the United States to, uh, to pass a, a, a litmus test. It was 1972, uh, this, uh, U.S. Supreme Court versus Jonas Yoder. This is what they said. They said when it comes to beliefs, moral convictions, all right, they, they, beliefs fall under two categories. They're either a preference or a conviction. If they're a preference, they can be negotiated. Um, they weaken under pressure. You'll change them. If they're convictions mm, mm. and they're unchangeable, mm -hmm. they get stronger under mm -hmm. pressure and they're non-negotiable. Yeah. And the Supreme Court said those are the only religious beliefs that are protected under the Constitution. So a person with courage and conviction makes a majority. Got to be a conviction. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be willing to go to jail. You've got to be willing to, to, to give your life for it. Yeah. It's got to be a conviction. When I think about we're in the Museum of the Bible, Jeremiah 29, 11. Because I know the plans that I have for you. I mean, it's just so many examples. And so I believe God loves us all, right? But he gives us choice as to what we will do and what we will not do. And, and, oh, and, I, and I think... Let me tell you. Yeah. I'm wide awake now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not condemning you. Oh, oh, I got to exactly. take a break. I got to take a break. I got to cool it down <laughs> in here. Because some people are just shocked. Because these are not conservatives. Yeah. These are not right-wingers. No. These are just principled people yeah. rooted in their convictions. Yeah. You know, one of the things that happened during COVID-19, there's a moratorium placed on paying rent and paying your mortgages. And while the government doled out money during this time for people to save and sort of squirrel away, so when the time does come again for you to pay that rent or pay your mortgage, that money would have been put aside. But many people did not do that. And I don't know if many people realize just this January, January 2023, that moratorium is over and no one no longer gets a break. You can evict them. Now, as a business owner and someone who has many tenants around the country, it personally impacted me because it was a moral dilemma. I mean, it's one thing to put people out, Ms. Johnson because they literally don't have the funds and cannot afford it. But if you have funds and the government has been giving you money and you use that money for something else and this moratorium comes around, what are we to do? What is the moral dilemma to you and how should we proceed? Because that is happening now and many people will be put out of their places and many of them will lose their homes as a result of this moratorium that no longer exists. So your question to me is what? What should be done? Or yeah, what should be... Should we... A continued moratorium, uh, that they've had enough time. Where is the morality in this? And moving forward with people who will literally lose their way of life. Well, number one, I think that it should have been explained to them the, ex the results of them not saving as much money as they could to reinstate their rental status, you know. And then in addition to that, the people who had um, an opportunity to, to delay their payments while we were in the COVID uh, pandemic, um, they delayed the payments and said that they could make the payments at, at a certain date, okay? Now, those people, most of them, some of them weren't able to work, and things were hard that during that time. So I feel that... What's wrong with the government allowing those guys to refinance, you know, no charge, and then just add it in to their mortgage payment and start over fresh again? 
And then there are uh, grants that the states have. They could easily um, advance grants to ranchers so that they could reinstate their rent. And then what about giving the homeowners uh, a tax write-off for writing it off? Because everything you make off of rent, if you make a profit, then uh, you're going to pay taxes off. So there are things that could be put in place, whereas it could satisfy that and it could just be wiped out, particularly in the mortgage. There's no reason for a person to lose their home if they didn't, if they don't have the money to reinstate it, just add it on to their monthly payment. Just redo the loan. Start them over again. And renters? Renters will basically just have to be forgiven. Pastor? God forgave Adam and Eve, but he put them out the garden. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I like the compromise and negotiation can we work things out yeah. but but mercy flows from justice justice first justice is the acknowledgement of the infraction that you had the opportunity to save that money and you violated that so you shouldn't be crying foul what you should be looking for is some type of a negotiation some type of compromise that flows from mercy <laughs> so you know I I'm kind of an accountability kind of person, you know. I mean, I love, you know, grace, certainly grace and mercy is important. But at some point, I think that you got to be accountable. I love all the ideas of my, you know, finance, of my mortgage. She's got some excellent. And I also love, I think, you know, for the rent, right, because at some point, somebody's got to pay for that mortgage, right? So giving the landowners Tax, tax rebates or giving them some because that money had to come from someplace. I tell you, you know, for me here again in the healthcare space, um, we're looking at social needs and homelessness is at an all time high. And I like to look at public private partnerships that mm. are available to come to the aid of, of this homelessness issue, because it's huge. People are going to the emergency room. Think about it. The hospital is the, most, is the best place you're going to go. You're going to get your medicines. You're going to be warm if it's cold outside. You're going to be cool if it's hot outside. You're going to get a nice bath. You're going to get a bathroom. You're going to get your medications. And if you're lonely, guess what? Somebody's going to come and bother you at least every 30 minutes, right? So it cures all ails. But it's the most expensive. And so many health plans across the country are looking at other strategies in which they can address the homelessness issue. Because ultimately, if you don't take care of, if you don't go upstream, here again, bringing private public partnerships, faith-based organizations, other communities together to address this, we're going to have exorbitant health care costs, right? That's what we're going to. So I think it's multifactorial to address it. First, beginning with the individual that needs the shelter, they've got to become accountable, right? As well as looking at, you know, finance, mortgage, opportunities, tax incentives, and then also, you know, how do we um, look at some private public partnerships that can support this? Uh, I'd like to say the government uh, grants uh, different companies money to, well, during the pandemic, we got grants that we did not have to pay back, okay? So 
the peop- a lot of people were laid off from their jobs. A lot of companies closed down. Yeah. So if you really think about the whole picture, a lot of people, they didn't pay rent because they didn't have any money to pay rent. They barely made it. So if the government can give, I'll use myself as an example. I got like some millions of dollars to keep going, to keep my employees there. Some stayed and some were not able to stay, but we actually got money for this reason. So those, what about those people who uh, were laid off or had, didn't, they were just laid off and didn't get anything? So I don't think that is wrong for, I think that the, People who own properties, they can certainly, if they're, if they're renting these properties out, and you heard me say that they can go and apply for a loan and put the delinquencies on the bottom of their loan, okay? Well, now, they, they can reinstate this, but the renters, if they were laid off, well, they didn't have any money to save. But if the people with the homes are going to get their payment added on to their balance, then they're saving their home. So it's nothing wrong with them being able to uh, just forgive the renters because they didn't have it and let them start over again. Anyway, the, the state is going to have to pay for them if they get put out. They're going to have to get on uh, Section 8 or something like that. So it's an easy way to fix it if the legislators will try to fix it. It's not that hard. You can applaud if you think so. Like you said, Armstrong, it, it's going to take a, a diversity of approaches to making a difference. We have a $1.2 billion development project in, in Brooklyn. Uh, I'm a 50% partner in that. We've allotted 20, and it's 100% affordable uh, for middle class as well as low income. We allotted 20% of those 2,000 units for individuals who are coming out of the system who are mm-hmm. homeless mm-hmm. just awesome. to give them a leg up and get them started. So it's everyone coming together and taking on that moral accountability and responsibility mm-hmm. within the capitalistic system. How do you make sure that your moral and ethical values are aligned with your business, your employees, and the larger community? It's difficult to separate the values and morality of the owner of the business from the business because whatever their value system is, it will, it will end up <laughs> in that business, in the employee, how they run it. Earlier in the, sh- the program, you talked about loyalty. Loyalty is not a, something that you earn. You can't earn it. If you earn it, it's transactional, right? Uh, loyalty is a gift. People give you their loyalty as a gift when, number one, you value them. Number two, when you increase their value as a result of being in relationship with you, working for that company. And thirdly, most importantly, when they see you live out your moral and ethical values before them, they give you the gift of morality uh, and loyalty. I'm sorry. So that's that's where it comes into play. And and instead of having people, if I may, uh, we we. We did a a training with Disney, and Disney was talking about some of the issues that they were having and losing employees to 
to Universal Studios down the street because they were playing more. And what they realized is that when people were coming to work for them and they bought into the vision, right, they were committed to that vision. Now people were coming only for the money, the amount of pay, if they can get more pay. So they realized that people weren't committed. They were compliant in order to get the job. And they realize that people now start out compliant, and you have to convert them from compliance to commitment, and it doesn't always work out that way. So money drives it. Uh, you know, quickly, before we go to break, uh, one of the very interesting things that's very private and it's also emotional, too, is that in the deaf care, in the deaf care industry, there's so many people that you meet that cannot pay the funeral costs. Some of them have been sitting in morgues and refrigerators for eight or nine months because they just cannot pay the expenses. And, you know, I could say the funeral home should find a way to make sure that their loved ones are buried, but it's a business for them, too. Yeah. And I have friends who step in and literally privately pay the burial costs. Pay it. And then for those that you're connected with that you know are going to eventually die at the age group, you go and pay the insurance right. in advance. But what is the mor what is the morality there of anyone, especially with COVID and, and just death is just like it's nothing that we've ever seen before. Yeah, yeah. So I'm trying I think, you know, the word of God says that we are our brother's keeper. Mm -hmm. And um you know hold, I think hold that, hold that. I, don't, I got a minute. I'm going to take the minute on the other side because I want to disrupt. I think that's important. You know, it's fascinating that we're really talking about life and death situations from the beginning into the end and how we take care of the most vulnerable. You were talking during the break. We were talking about the deaf industry and what's happening with so many people that are not being buried. They're in storage units, which they have to pay fees on. That's correct. Uh, you know, New York City, we were the epicenter of uh, covid when it hit the United States, and we had people literally stored in refrigerated trucks lined up out of funeral homes because there was not enough money to process or staffing to even process. We ended up doing virtual funerals, uh, keeping just the family uh, in order to process it, uh, and we took up collections. We had people who, out of their generosity and their success, uh, they were willing to pay or pay towards the burial of individuals who just couldn't afford it. And, you know, as much as uh, <laughs> we go, we take a lot of criticism for being such a large congregation, but being a large congregation gives us the capacity to do things that smaller churches can't do. And that really came through during COVID. We had to expand our feeding program. We took it from 25,000 to 130,000 people that we were feeding uh, in, in, in a year's time because the demand was so high. So we have the capacity to do it. So it's being, like you said, yeah. our brother's keeper. Right. Right, right. No, I, I really applaud that because I think that um, the church, right, is is commanded to come to aid. I mean, we look to the government oftentimes to cure our issues, 
But really, I mean, it's the people of God. God wants, is telling us we are to be, you know, those that are feeding the poor and what have you. So I think it's back to that public-private, you know, partnerships and how do we feed, how do we clothe, how do we house, you know, provide employment opportunities and what have you. And so I, I just think it's, it's really critical. But you're right. I mean, on both ends, what is that moral fabric? How do we really come together and make sure all of our community has the opportunity to excel and to reach their potential and, and, and whether, whether we acknowledge it or not death is a business yeah. yes. life is a business feeding people is a business a church is a business it is the business of morality because mm-hmm. we are faced with dilemmas your name your question so I've been a landlord in DC probably 20 something years or so and I think you know we've been all been talking listening to the people talk and I haven't heard the word about personal responsibility at the core of any morality lies you know personal responsibility if you're living somewhere or if you want something to eat, then no one uh, has the job of feeding you or providing your housing. We've come up with all these intricate programs of how we can respond to COVID by the government, help you with your rent, things like that. But as a landlord, I didn't get into the business of being a Section 8 landlord or a social worker by providing some kind of facility for someone who's now out of work because of the pandemic. And all during the pandemic, I always say, hey, the grass kept growing. Someone's got to cut the grass. And the people who are affected by COVID or wherever they're affected by it, it all comes down to your own personal responsibility. And without that, there is no morality. Thank you. Well, I think we, we, we have to understand that some people are not in a position to be personally responsible. We have to understand the social conditions, the factors that come into play that put people in a situation. You know, when we start talking about poverty and and these issues, you know, we have to be careful. We can't blame the poor. So it's not either or in a society that's so polarized and, you know, you've got to pick sides. No, it's both and. What about his point? It's understanding the plight of the homeowner and understanding the plight of the renter and coming together. I think his point was deeper. What's that? I I think some people are just reckless. I don't think they care. I think there's some people in society just doesn't want to work. Don't want to be responsible. That's true. But why should he bear that burden? Because listen, he still has to pay his mortgage. Just because they're not paying that rent, he still has the burden and the accountability of paying his bills. And it's putting placing him in a hardship. No, absolutely. That's why I said it's not both. So it, what it, about sympathy for him? Either or. No, there should be programs to help him just like a program the to program help The program is you pay your rent. <laughs> <laughs> look, look. It's easy for you to say. No, it's not even. Some people can pay their rent. Not everybody is struggling. Some people are trifling, brother. I agree with that. But there are people. Look, I've been on the streets with these people. I've heard them. And there's not one size fits all when it comes to poor and homeless people. It's not just not having the money. They could be physically disabled as a result of COVID. We had people who were physically shut down. They couldn't go to work even if they wanted but to. Those are not the ones we're talking about. Well, but you got to be clear that there are people well, we acknowledge that. who But what about those that can? Okay. And what a fleece system. Armstrong, I'd yeah. like to address what you're saying. Now, you're saying that the renters should pay their rent. If they can. If they can, they should pay their rent. I agree. If they can, they should pay their rent. However, 
the homeowner who owns that home, there there are ways, they have ways and means to maintain their property because the the government has a plan for them. They they have a plan where they don't have to make that payment during that pandemic period. They had a long period of time. After it's over, then they could put it on the end of the loan and then eventually they could refinance it. So the homeowners do have an alternative as far as losing their investments. Uh, renters, sometimes if they don't have it, they just don't have it. So the government has programs. We live in America, and I agree that we should pay our rent, but those who cannot afford to pay the rent, the government should step in, or, or maybe you know, I, the I, I, nonprofit see, this, organization. I, 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 yeah, this is the results of capitalism that I talked about in the beginning of the program. It creates situations where relationships become transactional. He said that he did not have a house to rent for social reasons. He's not looking to be a, 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 a social worker. I said that. That's very clear. And I respect that. I understand that. But the reality is, if you look at all relationships transactionally and everything having a financial equivalent, then it creates the problems that capitalism creates. There has to be compassion. There has to be mercy. We have to think about the plight of the homeowner and the plight of the renter and find some place of agreement to help them both. I think something that has come out of this discussion tonight needs to be talked about more. I think a common theme, um, you have a question? Yes, please. Yes, go ahead. Hi, uh, my name is Charlotte. I kind of listen to you guys, but um, I guess what we are going through is when you guys are talking broad, it's like someone with multiple, multiple units, multiple property. They have money in a bank account. What about that person who only have two or three, but they're going through the same thing? You're not paying your rent. The government doesn't help, like, smaller people. And um, what do you tell to those people? Because at the end of the day, they also lose their property for foreclosure. The renter can always go back and rent another property. But this person... Probably that messed up their credit, and they can't buy anymore. So they go back into the pro like the problem. That problem becomes of you going to try to find rent yourself, where you had properties now you you pretty much uh, you're done. Yeah. Hey, can I respond? You see, what, you're in a moral dilemma. You have to make a moral judgment. What's going to be your moral value system? So there, there's a value system. Right set of principles that you live by, what you stand for, what guides your, your thinking, what you, what you stand for, right? Uh, but then there's a value system, how you prioritize that. So what you're saying is you, you're in a moral dilemma because you've got your own family to feed, and now you've got responsibility for this family who can't pay their rent. So you have to make a moral choice on that one. But I'd like to say uh, to you, to the young lady, it's uh, we're talking about the pandemic when people cannot afford to pay their rent. There are solutions for you as the homeowners. I don't care how many units you have, then they will not foreclose on you during the pandemic. They will give you the opportunity to delay those payments. And some of those payments could be forgiven. There is a way because you have the asset. And then as soon as that period of time ends, then you can go in and refinance that and put it on the end of your 
uh, loan, and it can become a tax write-off for you. I'm sure if you're making money off of that property, you're paying taxes, and you could get a tax credit for it. But you also Thank have you. to have the will to do that. Yeah, you do, but there is a solution. <laughs> yeah. Hi, so my name is Raisa, and I have a question. Um, I want to see you guys' perspective on something, please. So what's the fine line to morality as a business owner? Um, let's say that, you know, you have your principles. Um, if you're Christian, you base it off the Bible and everything. And um, where do you say, okay, I've had, this is the maximum I can do. And also, um, how does it affect your business, um, the people who... Uh, work for you um, who see this and witness this they're working hard they're doing all of this and you, they see you being gracious or merciful to others I just want to know your perspectives on what's the fine line and um, yeah thank you okay I'm happy to thank you that. for the questions by the way thank you so much that was a wonderful question so I will say um, as a business owner that started with $400 on my mother's credit card um, that has grown it to now a multi-million dollar organization. I will say all along the way, I've had to make those difficult decisions. My husband is here in the audience. He knows the days when we had to mortgage our home, when I didn't, couldn't bring home the money that I thought I had to. You know, so all along the way, we have had to make those sacrifices. And you make those sacrifices, you're giving to your staff. Not too many years ago, I, my salary was cut so that I could make sure others. But I will say, though, that at some point, what I say, and my staff, I say it, nobody's volunteering for HCD International. I don't have a single volunteer that's on my payroll. Nobody. Okay? So at the end of the day, I don't, my promise is whatever I promise to pay you, whether it's whatever it might be, I'm going to pay you. But I don't ever have someone to work, right? And I know I don't have the money to pay them. Mm -mm. So what I'm saying to you is that if there's a situation where you come to the point where you truly, you've cut your salary, you've done, you know, you're not buying the red bottom shoes, you're doing all the things that you know you need to do, and you still don't have money to pay your staff, right? You know, after you didn't pray, <laughs> after you, because you, I never send people to the, to the bank on faith. You get a check from me, it can cash. You don't have to pray. You may not even know God. But you, it's going to be the money. It's going to be there because I'm not going to give it to you if it's not there. One thing that everyone has in common here is that money is not your God. That's not what you work for. You work for greater good. You work for a purpose. You work for something you believe in. And the wedding will flow like the Niagara. But if your goal is to make money, it's short-lived. It's short-term. You will miss your blessings. But, but you have to be persistent. You have to have resilience. Right. Because we, we were on a journey to get to where we are. And there were times when I didn't have food to feed my family. Right. And I was building a ministry, following God's word. There was, there was a, a, a church worker who didn't even know, she was working in the summer feeding program, brought to my wife and I, when we were struggling, 10 pounds of hot dogs. Just for no reason. We didn't call her. She just brought She said, you know, I felt just to bring this to you. She had no idea that we didn't have money. Mm -hmm. So I know how to fix hot dogs any way you want. I can put them in gravy, <laughs> slice them, I'll bake them, I'll fry them up for you. I know hot dogs. Yeah. 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 But that was part of the journey. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. You know, it's something when we're, t we're talking about business, right? And for me, the morality of business is because I know God called me to do what I do. Ain't no way in the world. And if you're around me for a few minutes, you can say, I think there's something divine about this thing, right? But, you know, you got to know that God is not about giving you money. He, you get that. Don't get me wrong. You're in business and you got to write a check. You got to write those checks. But he's more about your purpose, your, your mission. What has he called you to do in this kingdom, right? And who has he called you to help? And he will bring the provision for the vision when you are, when you are in line with that. And he will show you who you're to help and what you, what you to do. And it will come. But it's about him building your character first. He wants to know when I give it to you, you're going to know what to do with it, how to flow. And he will give it to you if it can flow through you. Is, is there, oh yeah, oh yeah. What happens when you have the dilemma and you compromise your integrity and your morality and sometimes you're not punished for it? At least you don't see it, but it happens. I mean, everything, you know, I'm a man with a conscience and things that I felt I should have been punished for, it just did not. Sometimes, help me out, Pastor, because I don't want to say these by the wrong way. But sometimes I think it's your intentions. It's your heart. I think we all pay a price for something. But sometimes you do things that you regret. You want to do it because I'm human. I've been there, okay? You want me to absolve you on no, national No, no, no. <laughs> I, just, I just want the audience to understand. Let me tell you this. That sometimes the things you have to do that you have to pray about. You got to really go in the shower and get real clean off because you got so dirty. I've been there. Armstrong, one of the definitions of sin in both the Hebrew but more so in the Greek language is to miss the mark. It's to fall short. That's the reality of our broken and wounded condition in this world in which we live. And that's why the beauty of our Christian faith is that when that happens, we own it. We ask God's forgiveness yes. and then we move on. Yes. And then Armstrong, what I'd like to say on that, God knows your heart and God is a forgiven God. And you might not um, reap it outwardly, but you might have to do some reaping, but God is a forgiven God. And if you repent and you're sorry for it, God can forgive you. He, he, he give, look in the Bible, see how many people was forgiven. Look at David. Look what David did. And no one gets he puts away with that. No one gets away with No one gets, gets away. away. Absolutely. You may not understand how you had to pay for mm -hmm. that moment. But you have to pay. But the universe has to be balanced. Yes, it has to be balanced. That's you what Christ was all about. You might have to pay. You God knows your heart. What was the circumstances of what you did? He knows. Sometimes you get in a situation <laughs> and you can't help yourself. And, but God this sounds knows real personal that right It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's just real personal. Mercy right here. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, here's the good thing. He still blesses me not because of, yes, but, but in spite of. Yeah. Come on He's now. blessed me anyhow. Yes. Yes. Colonel, yes. there you go. But I want you to know I'm human too. Yes. Okay, that's all I'm trying to tell you. Go ahead, Colonel. I'm uh, Derek Campbell. I've got a comment, and uh, hopefully I can turn it into a question. Uh, as Armstrong, as you've heard, him, he's called me Colonel. I'm a Marine Colonel. In this business of morality, we deal with it often in terms of life and death, 
right? I'm three combat tours in. So you're ha having to make moral decisions and make moral judgments that have ultimate consequences, right? And one of the things I haven't heard you all mention that I do want you to talk about is the concept of leadership in the adjudication of morality as you are business owners and leaders in the community. How does your leadership drive your decision-making with what we call a strategic concept, morality, that then works its way down? I, I know you said there's a difference between you know, morality and ethics where it works its way down to the, the tactical level of ethics, the adjudication of day-to-day -day interaction with humans. So it's leadership in, um, yeah. I'd say, in, in, encompassed around how you adjudicate In other words, how do you generate people honor and respecting you, right. not because of your position, right. but because of your character? He's a perfect right. example. I love that. Yeah. Because when he's on the battlefield, if he's leading uh, a troop or whatever, or a platoon or whatever, all right, they will give their life for him right. if they've seen him live out a moral standard because they know that they could trust him with their life and they're willing to give their life. See, that's why I said loyalty can't be earned. It's a gift that's given when people see you live out that moral standard and they feel secure with you and they can trust you. One thing that I prescribe to on a daily basis, certainly not perfect, but servant leadership, right? And servant leadership says that really, you know, I'm here to serve you. I love being able to pour into my staff. Nothing gives me greater joy. I tell folks, you're going to get three types of cap. There's three types of capital. There's, you know, certainly there's financial capital, there's intellectual capital, and there's relationship capital. But nothing is more, mo I think what's most important is intellectual capital. Because once you grow, once we, that seed of knowledge and opportunity and experience is planted in good ground, and notice I said good ground, right? You can take it. I, I was one of those that, you know, I worked for three entrepreneurs before I decided to make that leap, right? And so I think it's so important that we show and do, put, you know, pull your sleeves up. Come on. Doesn't matter what, what, doesn't matter what my title is. No, I want to show you and I'm, I'm there to serve in the community. Last week we had the opportunity. I was passionate about taking some lunch bags to a particular shelter. My staff can tell me, nope, I wanted, you know, let's get and make the, make the lunch. I wanted to deliver. I wanted to see where it's going. So getting on the ground, I think it's so very important that we, that we support our communities, whether you're dealing with women and single children, whether you're dealing with men, you know, homeless, get in and feel, talk, hear them, never be so high that you don't understand, you know, the real essence of, of being, you know, on the ground and without, because guess what? If not, but God's grace, come on. I mean, at any moment in time, something could happen to you and you could be that one in need of food. So I just think servant leadership is so very important. You're never too big to do the smallest thing. My, my front desk staff person is just as important to me because guess what? They're watching the door as well. They protect us. They're over the phone. They're important. How do we help to build them just as we do the other executives on our team? Think about it, Armstrong. There are two types of, of influence. Personal and positional. Yeah. Personal influence comes when you're a moral individual. Jesus had no army, no military, right. no, no, no weapons of mass destruction, right. <laughs> nothing. But look at how he revolutionized history, yes. revolutionized humanity. Right. He had that personal influence. He built relationships and he lived out the moral standard that he presented to the people that he touched and yeah. spoke to.
Yeah, without social media, right? That's right. Come on. <laughs> come on. And he's got two bill, over two billion followers come right on, now. Come on. Come on. Right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lois? <laughs> <laughs> they said it all. <laughs> they said it all. <laughs> uh, you, you know, um, as, as we um, close out tonight's just provocative discussion, how does one who long for the better things in life, who find themselves in the struggle, just can't seem to get a break. Nothing can seem to work for them in 20 seconds past. We only have a minute. Don't give up. Yeah. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his righteous way of yeah. doing and being, and all these things will be added to you. You've got to believe that, and you've got to stay at it. Persistence, resilience. Persistence is omnipotent, Armstrong. When you stay at it, stay at it, stay at it, there's a reward that's going to come your way. Don't give up. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. 